and reading, at their very best, are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what we're reading, but in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week, we have fun conversations with interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who they are. We invite you to learn more about the many perks of being a book lover. Are you nostalgic about a book you read as a kid? What book from your childhood remains vivid in your mind today? Our guest today, Diane New, hosts a podcast that explores that very question. The podcast, titled Shaped by Stories, features one avid reader each episode who talks about the book from their childhood or early adolescence that made the biggest impact on them and why. Diane had been a podcast fan for many years. In fact, she's been a podcast listener since almost the beginning of podcasts 12 years ago. But some changes in her own life convinced her there was no time like the present to start her own. Diane talks to us about her very favorite spot to read when she was a child in small town Idaho, why she loves Jane Austen like no other, why reading children's books as an adult is an important exercise, and how producing a podcast helped her find her special brand of people when she needed it most. Amy and I are starting to get the hang of this remote recording business, and we have Diane New with us. She is a podcast host of the podcast Shape by Stories, which I have had the honor of being on. So Diane, thank you so much for recording with us today. We appreciate it. I'm happy to be here. I'm excited because now you are the second podcaster that I listen to that I get to interview. So I'm (laughs) super stoked about that. But why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? So I am originally from the wilds of northern Idaho, like Canadian border territory. And I don't know, it's partially probably because of where I grew up, but I've always been a stereotypical book nerd, the kid who took high school English class very seriously. And I ended up going to graduate school for English literature, where my focus broadly was on late 18th and 19th century British novels. I'm now in the Seattle area. I'm no longer in academia. So I guess that just makes me now a dilettante reader and book collector. (laughs) So I'm curious. Now, I have never been to Idaho in general and not the northern part. Right. So is there just not much to do? Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, it's staring at trees. That's a big thing. (laughs) I'm getting like, it's a very outdoorsy type of area. And, you know, I think if you're into a lot of outdoor pursuits, especially some that are maybe more extreme in nature, then it is definitely your place. I am definitely an indoor kid. And so that was never me. It's a beautiful, beautiful place, but it's definitely more isolated. I'd love to see pictures. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I aspire to go to Idaho one day. I know it's not going to happen now when we're all quarantining in our homes, but someday I would like to go. Yeah, it's beautiful. Well, tell us how your podcast, Shaped by Stories, came to be. So, you know, just like the whole thing, what inspired it and go. So I have not been an early adopter on anything ever in my entire life. I'm just not that cool. But I was an early adopter podcast listener. That is one thing that I can say that I got in on the ground floor. And the first podcast I started listening to was Stuff You Should Know, which is now like a huge show. I think most people who are familiar with podcasts have probably 
heard about it or at least encountered it once or twice. And I started listening to that in 2008 when they were brand new. And from there, I just started listening to a bunch of other shows. So I think that when I first started thinking about the idea of the show, like I didn't necessarily even have a format in mind. It was just kind of like an idea of like, oh, I really love to talk to people about their childhood reading life and about their favorite books from, you know, when they were a kid. But a podcast was just a natural choice because it had been such a huge part of my own media consumption. I wasn't like, oh, I'd like to write a book about this. It just sort of naturally went that direction. I think as for why I wanted to start this specific podcast, I don't know. I I just wanted to create something, something that was still low stakes and a hobby. You know, nothing that I was trying to turn into something professional or that would feel stressful, but also something that was more than my personal writing, for example, which will never see the light of day ever. (laughs) I had left this corporate job that while I loved many aspects of it, especially my coworkers on the whole, it started to wear on me and I had a baby at home and I was sleep deprived and I was very anxious and I don't know. I just wanted to complete something, if that makes sense. I think anybody mm-hmm. who's ever been through the churn of those early days with a baby, you know, where it just you never really feel like you're accomplishing anything. I wanted to make something that was cozy and warm and that had a distinct start and finish the way that every episode does. It was something to give me that sense of accomplishment and also to give me an excuse to talk to people about books. Looking back, I was needing a specific type of connection, I think. And this podcast and the relationships I formed because of it really gave me that I don't know. I, I just love learning about people. Like, where did you grow yeah. up? What was high school like for you? What do you do now? And and being able to look at those questions through a bookish lens, in addition to also getting to geek out over your favorite book, it just seemed like exactly what I needed. So, And it's really sort of a creative outlet. At least I find it. So although we're interviewing people, you still have to write the intro. You have to do research to come up with the questions you're going to ask. So I really find it fulfilling in that particular aspect. Yeah, as well. Definitely. I think that's a lot of what I was looking for. And this just seemed like a great way of getting that. It's the ultimate selfish do it for yourself project, really, is what I'm saying. (laughs) It is. (laughs) I mean, have you just always loved books from your own childhood that would kind of fall under that juvenile literature category? I had actually wondered, I'm like, oh, I wonder if she was a teacher. I, I didn't know if that was a specific area of literature that you love. In general? Well, I think we're all just so attached to those books that we read when we were kids that it's an easy thing for everyone to get enthusiastic about is Mm. a big part of it. Anything that people can be nostalgic about, I find people get excited about. Absolutely. Yeah. So when we started, we found it sort of difficult (laughs) to figure out the technical parts of podcasting. Mm. And I'm wondering... Was your learning curve pretty steep or were you sort of a technological person to be in with? Uh, No. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny. Like, I feel like a lot of podcasts that you listen to, especially if they're like a more casual chatty type of show, they can get pretty self-referential, especially if you listen to them over time. You'll sort of pick up like they'll mention like, oh, I'm using this software or I'm using this mic or whatever. And so I think there was a part of me that even though I had never listened to this is how you podcast episode after 10 plus years of listening, I was like, I know how this works, which by the way, was completely wrong. I did not know how it worked at all. (laughs) But my husband, who's a tech guy, was able to help me with all the hardware stuff. And he actually taught me how to use the software that I use for editing. But I did go into it with a a false sense of confidence, I think. (laughs) We struggled for a bit, but it was the editing part that we had the most trouble with. So eventually we had to hire a teenage student and give him 20 bucks to show us how to do it. (laughs) 
technically it was two teenage students and we gave each of them 20 bucks, but two different technological issues. So (laughs) that, you know, it's kind of a bargain rate really when you think about it. (laughs) It It is. (laughs) It is. So how do you go about finding the guests for your show? So (laughs) from the start, I just started out with my friends from grad school and friends of friends because I didn't know anybody and both for my own comfort level. And I don't know, I just had no idea where else to start. I'm sure there are people out there who are really good at just cold calling and emailing people and asking for them to come on their show. But that is not me at all. I just do not have that personality. So I had zero social media presence. I didn't have any personal accounts or anything. Like I, the type of person who I wasn't on Facebook, I wasn't on Instagram for myself. So I had no way of networking or getting word out. And I knew that I needed to do something. So I started an Instagram account and I managed to stumble upon Bookstagram, which is this thing that I didn't even know existed. It's a specific community of readers and book lovers on Instagram who pretty much exclusively only post about what they're reading or about their book collections. Like it's a very niche community. And through that, I ended up meeting people, chatting with them, finding people to come on the show that way. Did you always anticipate or plan for it to be remote? You know, something that you would do away from other people? Or had you planned on having it be something where you'd meet people and then you realize you needed to do it remotely? Yeah, I had planned on remote from the beginning. That was actually the biggest part of the tech setup and getting Mm -hmm. my husband with figuring that out and researching options for how to record remotely and, you know, the type of software that would work best for all of that. But yeah, I had never planned to do in person just because I knew that that wasn't going to be a feasible option for me, especially with a baby at home. So I Mm -hmm. needed to come up with something that was going to work with my lifestyle. And we have all the technology. This is definitely doable. And I knew from listening to other podcasts that interview guests that that is definitely an option. My biggest concern was figuring out a way to do it where it didn't sound like the person being interviewed was necessarily sitting at the bottom of a well. And that's always the biggest struggle. And, you know, there's always going to be some sound quality differences depending on the type of microphone that your guest is using. But I think on the whole, it's it's worked out okay. So what books have you read for the podcast that have made the biggest impression on you? The majority of the books that have been discussed on the podcast are also books that I read as a kid or teen. And they're also books that have made a pretty deep impression on me. Probably Anna Green Gables is at the top of that list, which I know is true for a lot of people. It's just one of those books. But the book that was the biggest revelation for me from a series that I knew nothing about, like I had never even heard about these books, was Betsy in Spite of Herself, which is one of the books in the Betsy Tacy series by Maud Hart Lovelace. And I fell so hard for Betsy Ray as a character and everything about those books. I recorded that episode with my guest Liz. She's Pony Books on Instagram. And I went on to devour the rest of the series. And I was just constantly DMing Liz all my thoughts and feelings like, OMG, I love these books. I just like teen girled like all over her instant messages. And <laughs> I feel pretty certain that if I had read those books as a young girl, they would be right up there with the Anna Green Gable series in terms of being touchstone books for me. And Betsy's just such a great character. Like, I love her whole family and her home life and all their traditions. Her dad is the best. Her friendships are so wonderful. Her relationship with her older sister is really special. And there's that little thread of romance throughout the high school and post-high school books that is very sweet and swoony. It is full Gilbert and Anne territory. So they're extremely huggable books. Highly recommend. 10 out of 10. So how many are there in the series? 
So there are, I think there's 10 altogether. I've actually only read the final six because that's kind of where Liz started me was with the high school books. The first Mm -hmm. four are when she's like really little. And those apparently the writing style are a little bit more juvenile. So I'm saving those for when my daughter gets a little bit older and then I can read them to her. But then there's very much like a strong kind of Anna Green Gables type of vibe through those high school books. They're not quite as sweet as the Anna Green Gables books can be. Like Betsy's just a slightly more fallible character. She's a little boy crazy. She feels very much like a real teenage girl. I love Anne Shirley. I love those books. But sometimes when you read them, you're like, wow this girl's perfect. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, she does everything right all the time, especially once she gets beyond all the scrapes that she gets into as a little kid. But Betsy's, she's kind of trying to figure things out. She doesn't always make all the right choices in high school. And it's just so interesting to see that different time of life because it's set in a fictional town based on a real town in Minnesota. But the way that high school worked back then and the kind of traditions and the dance cards, all of that kind of stuff gets described. And if you're like a little bit of a period drama kind of nerd or anything like that, there's all those little details about the kind of clothes that they wore. And I love all that stuff. So are these books fairly easily accessible? Like if someone wanted to check them out? They are still in print. They're still in print. HarperCollins actually reissued all of them fairly recently. So those are all available in paperback. And my library system had all of them both in hardcover and they had the Kindle editions available for checkout as well. So if you are a person or have a kid who's really into the Anne of Green Gables series and you finished all of them, you feel like this would be a good series to turn to, to find a little spark of that. Absolutely. That's a cool thing to know. What type of preparation do you do in order to have a discussion with a guest? I'm assuming you read the book that the person wants to talk about. Right. Yeah, that really is the main prep is the reading. Part of the guest booking process is having the guest select the book they want to discuss. And I should say it doesn't have to be a children's book at all. It just has to be a book that the guest first read as a kid or teen. I don't know. If someone wants to come on and talk about how War and Peace changed their life at age 12, like I'm open to it. (laughs) But (laughs) it usually is a classic middle grade book. I will read or reread the book so that we can discuss it, but we're not really breaking down the book or doing cultural analysis. It's more about the guest's personal relationship with the book. So I need to read the book to be familiar enough to ask questions, but I'm not necessarily making like a list of talking points or these are all the things we need to explicate in this discussion. And then if I'm interviewing an author, I will do an extra segment where we talk about their book. And in that case, I've obviously read their book as well. So that's really the main prep is really just reading. So I'm not sure that I've listened to one of your episodes where you've interviewed an author. Were there books that they chose as something that affected them surprising to you? Not really. Like you can kind of see the threads. I just talked to an author. Her episode will be out in a few weeks. And the book that she selected is I Capture the Castle. And so Mm. that is obviously all about becoming a writer. Like that's a big part of that book. I could definitely see those ties there. My episode on Island of the Blue Dolphins, that was with a middle grade author. And those books made a big impression on her and part of the why she had always been interested in becoming a writer. So I think even if an author selects a book that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the type of book that they write today, for a lot of them, it was still the thing that kind of sparked their interest in reading, obviously. And then from there, like, oh, I could maybe do this. I want to write my own book. So Diane, what intrigues you about the books that have an impact on people from their childhood? 
I think the thing that most attracts me to having this type of discussion with people is the enthusiasm. Like people just get so excited about it and it's so fun even just to see their reactions. Like I love this book. It might just be the particularly nerdy circles that I hang out in, but I've definitely been at gatherings before when some classic childhood book comes up and everyone starts practically, you know, squealing and flapping their hands about or or arguing over the book, which is the best thing. I love that when that happens. Like, you know, whether Joe and Lori from Little Women should have gotten together, it's like a big bone of contention still. This book is like well over 100 years old and people still have strong feelings about it. I think we're just attached to these books that we read while we were still really in the process of figuring things out. And obviously we're all still working on that every day, even as adults, hopefully. But I don't know, you will never convince me that the particular brand of confusion and loneliness that you feel at 12 or 13 or through your teen years isn't a very specific thing. And I think the books that helped us through that time really stay with us. So that's a big part of what really intrigues me about about these books for people. I was just thinking about Little Women and all the excitement that people felt around the new film this past winter. Like mm -hmm. people were yeah. just wild about that. And I read so many articles from people talking about how important that book was to them as a kid. And it stems from people who fell so deeply in love with something during a really formative time in their life. You know, you just, you never really let go of it. Well, I know when I was on your podcast and talked about the book, Then Again, Maybe I Won't by Judy Bloom. I realized things reading the book again in preparation to talk to you about it. I was realizing <laughs> things about myself now as a 46-year-old person that I had never connected the dots. Right. And I thought, oh, maybe that's the reason you know, <laughs> that this helped me. I hadn't put those things together. Yeah. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah, you just don't have that that distance or that that clarity that comes with time. You read this book when you were a kid and it was really important to you. And it's, I think, really fun and also meaningful to go back and look at those books again and think like, why was this so important to me? And what was going on in my life? And thinking about how you read it now and, and what's different in your reactions and, and what is the same. Some people mm -hmm. still stand hard for Joe and Lori and they will never let go of that. Like they will take that to their grave. <laughs> so you mentioned growing up in Idaho and that you were a bookish kid. So tell us a little bit about your childhood reading habits, special memories that you have related to reading, special books. All right. Buckle up, everyone. <laughs> so, <All right. laughs> I, like I said, grew up in a really rural area. It's quite isolated. And I went to school in my small town and obviously was around other kids at that time. But we lived outside of town on many acres in the woods. And I was an only child with no neighborhood kids to play with. This is really explaining a lot about my personality. <laughs> so <laughs> most of the time I was entertaining myself. And for me, that largely came down to books and wandering in the woods with my dogs and my one cat who thought he was a dog and he would follow us when we were wandering out. It was adorable. I had a couple of spots that I loved to go and just sit and read. I feel like this is going to sound really weird, but my favorite spot was this fallen log in this meadowed area. And I would take my favorite books or books for school out there on weekends and just read on my special log. I can remember sitting there and reading A Wrinkle in Time very distinctly. I remember reading Fahrenheit 451 out there for school, and that was a high school book. So I was still doing this at like 16 or 17 years old. I was a very cool teen, guys. <laughs> this sounds lovely. <laughs> was there a cushion for the log? Because that sounds painful. <laughs> you know, you'd usually have like a jacket or something, take off your jacket, yeah, okay. sit on the log. But yeah, I don't know. Even now, if I come across a new book that I, I deem extra huggable, I will refer to it as a log book special. Like, yeah. <laughs> This is definitely a book I would have taken out to the log for Aww. sure. <laughs> that sounds super idyllic. I mean, that sounds great. 
talked about this with other people. They're like, that sounds like the beginning of a middle grade novel. I'm like, yeah. But again, I was also doing this like when I was a senior in high school as well. So again, I was very cool. <laughs> I yeah. had a tree too that I used to like to sit under to <laughs> to read. And sometimes I would even hug it and talk to the tree. But I wasn't oh. 16. But <laughs> I did do that's, that too. That's the difference, right? Like yeah. it seems like the, it's like the kind of thing that's cute until you're like 11 or 12. And then at some point you're supposed to be off socializing or hanging out with your friends. But nope, I was still out in the woods reading my books on a log. Well, here's the thing, y'all. Depending on how long that we quarantine, I might actually be outside <laughs> hugging a tree and talking to it. I don't know. That's entirely possible. So what do you think adult readers can get from reading their childhood favorites or more generally reading children's books as adults? I love this question. And my answer to it always is, have you ever watched a Pixar movie and just sobbed? And I, I think for most people, the answer is yes. If you have a heart, I mean, come on. And it's the same thing. Like there's so much from these books that is universal, that is still so relatable. And even if you're not in that time of life or that exact headspace now, you certainly were at one point, unless you just came out fully formed. And I think the emotional resonance is still there. So many of the best children's books have layers, right? Like there are things that you didn't even notice or appreciate until you're older. For myself, I love really paying attention to the parents or any other adult characters or the absence of them, because I think anybody who's read a lot of middle grade books knows that that, that's a classic trope is that the parents are either absent or they're completely ineffectual. But just seeing how the adults are portrayed in relation to the kids, being reminded of what it was like to be that middle school age, remembering those emotional struggles, which maybe for a lot of people, they're like, I don't ever want to go back to that time period ever again. But I just think there's still so many lessons and reminders that we can take away from these books, especially around, you know, empathy and friendship and there's always a little bit of follow your dreams in a lot of these books. So they're hopeful and especially right now, it's definitely the kind of thing that I want to be reading. You know, it's funny because I did not read a lot of children's books as an adult until probably the last couple of years. I think I just thought, I'm an adult. I shouldn't be reading children's <laughs> books. I mean, I obviously read books to my children, but I mean, reading them just for myself is what right. I'm referring to. And I have so enjoyed them. And I have found books that I never read as a child and I think, why didn't I ever read that? I wish that I had. Like The Secret Garden. I read that last fall. And I love that book. And I never read it as a kid. And I so appreciate it now. Yeah. So and it's like the I perfect quarantine read. It is the perfect quarantine read. <laughs> I read a lot of children's books. And partly that's because I have a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old. I also have a 16-year-old. So I have been over the many years reading what they've been reading. And I also teach middle school classes. But I've had people say, oh, you're just reading children's books because it's a quick read. You know, like for if you do a Goodreads challenge, like right. I'm trying to up my, <laughs> you know, number of books. And I'm like, well, Number one, that is a good strategy, you know, because you can get through them quickly most of the time, you know, but the thing that I've found, so I'll give you an example. I just finished listening to an audio book by Gordon Corman, and it's called No More Dead Dogs. It, it wasn't the greatest kids book I've ever read, but the thing I liked about it, it actually gave me the idea for a writing prompt to give to my students because oh my. the kid in the story, his name is Wallace Wallace. <laughs> and then one of the other characters in the story gets his idioms mixed up. 
like he would say something like, well, that's just the icing on the gravy. You know, he, he mixes up his idioms. And so I ended up taking those two ideas and combining them together. And that's what I asked my middle school students to write about. They had to think of a character. The character's first and last name had to be the same and make sense. And they had to be a kid who mixes up their idioms. And they had to write a little creative, a little short paragraph about this character. And I never would have gotten that idea had I not listened to this audiobook. So I feel like from a teaching perspective, that's where I get a lot of fun ideas for things that I can ask my students to do. So I, I think there's a lot of fun that you can have with children's literature and somehow it's like if you're an adult, you're not allowed to have fun anymore. Yeah, we're supposed to be so serious and sad now. What do you get from talking to your podcast guests? And what do you hope listeners get from listening to your podcast? Oh, goodness. I feel like it's hard for me to pinpoint specific things. I guess what I most get from talking to each guest is really feelings. That sounds so cheesy. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. It's really like feelings of warmth and of meeting with another kindred spirit. I'm sure most people listening to this would describe themselves as book people. And so you probably understand. But finding somebody who is just as into your thing and loves talking about it. I don't know. It's just it's nice to find your people. So I hope when people listen to the show, they also feel like they found their people. That's what I care about more than anything else. That's one of the awesome things about podcasts. You know, Carrie and I went to a podcast convention when we first started. In fact, I don't know that we had even technically started yet. We were in preparation for starting, right? And there was a breakout session that was about niche podcasts. And the people presenting it were, I think, knitters. Like yeah. they had a podcast about knitting or crocheting, I, I think. And they had like thousands of followers. And I thought, how can you have a podcast about crochet? <laughs> but those crocheters obviously love that podcast. That's the yep. great thing about podcasts is there's something for everybody on there. Yeah. It's funny, like I'm obviously somebody who has a really close relationship with her books in a logbook special kind of way. So, you know, and, and I don't think that's special or unique at all necessarily, but it also isn't something that I personally would just bring up in the work break room, for example, without right. you know being worried that people are going to think that I'm a real weirdo. And having the podcast is an opportunity to process some of that with like-minded people. And that's a real joy. I think I've always known that these types of stories are really deeply embedded in me. And the more that I talk about it and unpack it, both for myself and with other people, I can see more and more just how much we are all shaped by the things that we read. And it is such like a specific thing to talk about. And just having a space where it's okay to, you know, geek out about this book that you loved when you were 12, and that you still love today. That's kind of like the magical part of the internet and podcasting and all of that. So because you record remotely and always have, unlike Amy and I, you haven't had to like pivot because of the pandemic, but have you noticed that the pandemic is affecting either what you're reading or how you're reading now, or maybe the discussions that you're having with guests? Yeah. Like you said, I haven't had much of an impact, you know, from the logistical side of things because I've always recorded remotely and, and my subject material isn't topical. So it hasn't really changed from that standpoint. I know for myself, 
personally, I know I only want to read and talk about the coziest or most escapist type of books. Like if they are set in the real world, they need to be so gentle. And if there's a high stakes conflict, it better be like a full fantasy setting. I don't want any humans in this book. (laughs) And (laughs) like, I just want it to be completely removed from real life. And Fortunately, the types of books that people tend to want to discuss on the show anyway work for that. My most recent episode was on The Secret Garden, and that's a perfect example of, of that type of cozier book. But, you know, I think the biggest thing is just scheduling. Like, you would think that because everybody's at home, like, scheduling would be easier. But I know for myself, it's, you know, normally when I record with somebody, I have my husband take my daughter and dog out of the house, and he can take her to go run errands for a couple hours. So now finding, like, quiet time. We're all at home, but we're at home with the other people who are in our homes. <laughs> so, right. you know, and, and that is also true for the people that I've had on the show. So, you know, I've had some rescheduling with people because they've also had childcare issues on their end and just figuring out all of that. That That's really been the biggest impact. We need to cut ourselves some slack on that point, though, because I know Jimmy Fallon has started his late night show again, and mm-hmm. apparently his daughters wander in occasionally <laughs> into the room that he's doing yeah. it in, and everybody finds it completely charming. So they should find us charming as well. Yeah, right? they should. And our dogs are barking, and our kids yeah. are wanting to know where their lunch is. <laughs> <laughs> If my 12-year-old comes in and farts, y'all don't want to be part of that. (laughs) So where can listeners find you on social media? You can find me on Instagram at Shape by Stories Diane. I post there when a new podcast is out and the rest of the time it's just me sharing my book collection and talking very enthusiastically, usually about Jane Austen and some other favorite books. I only put out the podcast every two weeks and I'm probably going to be moving to a monthly schedule pretty soon. So that's really the best way to keep tabs on when a new episode has come out. I do want to ask you a quick question because a lot of your photos on Instagram are just beautiful and they often do include Jane Austen. So <laughs> would you say, now didn't you say your graduate English lit degree you focused on 18th and 19th century yeah, literature. Yeah, I did. So is that sort of your favorite, Jane Austen? Absolutely. Hands down. 100%. Okay. Okay. <laughs> no question about it. That was an easy answer. <laughs> we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. Okay, so we're back with Diane New and with Carrie, and we're all going to talk about what we're reading now that we're all quarantined at home. So Carrie, what kind of books have you been reading? So I just finished a book called Neverworld Wake by Marisha Pessel, P-E-S-S-L, Pessel. So this was a book that I actually got my daughter for Christmas. She hadn't read it because it takes her forever to read books. But because of the quarantine, she was like, I'm going to read this book. And so she read it lickety split. And I thought, okay, I'm going to read that. And I read it lickety split. It was such a quick read. And I loved it. I gave it five stars, which a book really has to blow my mind in order to get five stars on Goodreads. But this one got it. And I should say, part of the reason I gave it five stars is because it sucked me in so fully. Like, I was so involved with the story that I wasn't nitpicking it. That sort of takes a lot. Because usually, if I'm reading a book, if I don't get drawn in, then I start looking for flaws and really 
over analyzing the characters and and doing annoying things as a reader. So this book sucked me in. It is about five college students. I think they've just finished their first year of college and they're involved in a car accident and they get stuck in what's called the never world. And what that is, is it's basically, it's not death, but it's not life. So it's almost like a purgatory. Hmm. And they have what's called these wakes. And so what will happen is for, say, 11 hours, they will be able to move. They can visit their families. They can live, or it seems like they're living. And then they get the feeling that they're going to fall asleep. And then when they wake up, they are right back where they ended in the car accident. Then their day starts again. It sort of reminds you of the movie Groundhog Day, Mm -hmm. except totally not funny. But there's this person there, this older gentleman called the keeper. And he explains to them where they are. And what they have to do is they have to decide that one of them is going to be able to live again. And the other four will die. And they have to agree. They have to come to a consensus on which one person is going to live. So it's interesting to see how they all react to this. Because what happens on each of these wakes, you could go rob a bank. And then after they fall asleep, at the next wake, the people who are at the bank that they rob won't remember anything. They remember, but the other people don't. And so you could do whatever crazy, horrible things you want it to do. And there would be no consequence because the next day the people would no longer remember. So that's the gist of the story. But what ultimately happens is they're trying to figure out the protagonist, Beatrice, her boyfriend, who had been friends with all of them, died suddenly, like a year prior. And everybody said it was a suicide, but they never believed it. So what they're able to do because of these wakes in the Neverworld is they're able to go back and figure out the mystery of how he really died. So it's kind of like an unfunny Groundhog's Day, (laughs) but it has elements. If you've ever seen the movie Inception, which Mm. I love the movie Inception, it's kind of mind bending like that. But it also reminds me of Life of Pi. So if you like that book, there's certain elements that are similar to that. So all those things together kept me reading and I really enjoyed it. So that's what I've had going on. How about you, Diane? What have you been reading? I am currently rereading Sense and Sensibility by Jane Austen for like the 50th time. And I feel like that requires no commentary, but I also... (laughs) I also just started the Invisible Library series by Genevieve Cogman. I don't know if you guys are familiar with those books. No. It is a series that starts, the first book is called The Invisible Library, and you are introduced to the main character who is a librarian for the capital L library. That's pretty much all you know about it. It's like this mysterious entity. And she's been sent on a mission to an alternate Victorian London to retrieve a specific book for the library. So it's a fantasy adventure story. There's a really cool magic system that's, I think, really unique. Like, I haven't really seen that in any other books. And it's definitely a book for book lovers and word nerds. Like, grammar and language precision comes up a lot. I feel like I feel like I can't really say much more than that because I don't want to give anything away because it's definitely one of those type of books. But did you ever read The Air Affair by Jasper Ford? I just started it. I am 
two chapters in right now. So it very much reminds me of that series, like the tone and the cleverness of the writing and just the illusions. Like it, it's very much in that vein. Cool. Now, is this like young adult or is Mm-mm. it an adult no. book? Yeah, it's an adult book, but I, I think that high school kids could also read it as well. It's one of those books that is outside of classification. You're kind of like, oh, what is this exactly? It definitely doesn't have that kind of YA feel to it. And I think the writing is tighter than what you might sometimes get in a, mm-hmm. in a typical YA novel, but it doesn't have those types of tropes. And the characters are all adults. So that's that's usually your dead giveaway if it's a YA yeah. novel is that like, you know, the, the heroine is 17. Now, have you ever read Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore by Robin Sloan? I have not. You should put that one on your list. You might like it. Now, it's not okay. set in Victorian England, but there is a secret library, and it's set in the San Francisco Bay Area, and it's pretty unique. I liked it a lot, and you might like it, too, if you like that kind of book. It's definitely a book for book lovers. Wouldn't yeah. you say, Carrie? Yes. Did we read that for book club? Yes, Several years ago, but yeah. So I've also been doing a lot of audiobooks, like a lot of audiobooks. And I used to only listen to nonfiction on audio. Like I just had a harder time following like a more intricate plot on audio. And and that's still the case. But because I've just been having like a harder time focusing on the page right now, audiobooks are perfect for giving me a little bit of escapism. And the type of book that I can really easily listen to is A Cozy Mystery because it's basically like procedural television, but in my ears. And most of those books are on the shorter side. Like, you know, maybe the audio is seven hours long and I usually listen to things on 2X. So that's like a book a day. So I'm just like cranking through those cozy mysteries. Oh my goodness. 2X. I think my mind would be blown. I even tried one time speeding it up to one and a half and I was like, (laughs) whoa, too much. I think my problem is I'm a pretty fast reader. And so if I listen to it on normal speed, it's like so slow that I really am not following the threads at all. I'm just like, my mind is wandering. So if it's fast enough that I really am having to listen, then I will actually listen and pay attention. I am listening to Mary Poppins right now. But I just started it. So I can't even really comment on it too much, (laughs) but I've been on the hold list for it for a while. Well, Amy, what else are you reading? I was going to say, that's not the book I'm talking about today. (laughs) So I am totally with you, Diane, that I've been having a really hard time concentrating while reading right now, which is kind of strange because in the past, when I'm stressed, I use books as a retreat and an escape. And it hasn't really worked in this particular situation. And I don't really know why. But I have found an exception to that. And it's children's books, which is really timely for our theme today. But I just finished a book today called Same Son Here, which was Mm. co-written by Silas House and Neela Vazwani. And if you've listened to our podcast, especially in the early episodes, you may know that I'm a Silas House fan. He's one of my favorite authors. He's a native Kentuckian, and he's written many best-selling novels, his most recent being Southernmost, which came out a couple of years ago. And because of my family's background, I grew up in West Virginia, I really enjoy Appalachian literature, and his books fall into this category. And the other author, Neela Vazwani, she's a short story and a children's writer, and she's based out of New York City. And she's won numerous literary awards, including the American Book Award, the Old Henry Prize. And she also won a Grammy because she's an audiobook narrator. And she narrated I Am Malala. You know what book I'm talking Mm, about? Yeah. Yeah, So she narrated that and won a Grammy for it, which is pretty cool. So The Same Son Here is a middle grade book, and it features two 12-year-old characters. The first one is River, and he's a young boy who lives in rural Kentucky. And then there's Mina, and she's living with her family 
who immigrated from India to Chinatown in New York City. And they find each other through a pen pal project through their schools. So this book is what you would call an epistolary novel. It's written completely in letter form. And it's set during the time right before Obama is elected to office his first term. So River lives with his mammal and his mother in the mountains of Kentucky. His father was laid off by the local coal mining company, and he's had to travel to find work on the Gulf Coast, and he rarely comes home to visit. And his mother suffers from debilitating headaches, and probably there's some mental illness in there as well. But River is incredibly close to his grandmother, his mamma. And she's a really spunky old lady. She's one of my favorite characters in the book. (laughs) And she is a peaceful activist against mountaintop removal mining. And mountaintop removal is a type of mining where they basically take the top off of mountains to get to the seams of coal underneath. Mm -hmm. And it causes a lot of environmental damage. It causes flooding, deforestation, and pollution to the lakes and streams. And this type of mining has replaced traditional mining in his town where he lives. And it has some dire consequences. And then there's Mina. And she was the last of her family to come over from India. Her mother and father and older brother came when she was a baby. And she stayed behind with her grandmother until she was about six years old. And she was incredibly close to her grandmother and hated to leave. But she's glad to be with her family. Her father travels to New Jersey and stays all week for the job that he has. And he only comes home on weekends. And her mother's a nanny for a wealthy family in a different part of the city. And when she joins her family in New York City, they're staying secretly in a rent-controlled apartment, which belongs to the family of their elderly neighbor, Mrs. Law, who's Chinese. The apartment has been in Mrs. Law's family for over 40 years, but the landlord is trying every way he can to force Mrs. Law and all the other rent-controlled tenants out so he can fix it up and rent it for much higher prices. The landlord refuses to fix the plumbing. He turns off their heat and water for periods of time as a means of harassment to get them out. So as River and Mina write to each other, they become a comfort to each other and consider each other their best friends. They learn about each other's cultures, rural versus urban, native born, American versus immigrant, boy versus girl. But they also have many similarities. They both love to read and they share book ideas. So Mina's favorite book is A Tree Grows in Brooklyn by Betty Smith, which makes sense because it's really an immigrant story. Mm -hmm. And then he tells her to read The Outsiders by S.E. Hinton. They're both very close to their grandparents or the senior citizen figures in their lives. They both have fathers who work far away and are not able to be with their families. They both are experiencing scary things happening to their family because of unfair practices of much more powerful forces. In River's case, it's the coal companies and the government. And for Mina, it's discrimination and fair housing. And I think it has some connections to our current situation as well. Everyone all over the world is dealing with COVID-19. We all have different ethnicities, cultures, but we're all having the same battle with the same disease but we all still see the same sun. As I was reading this book, I wondered how the authors wrote it. Did it start out where the authors were trying to remember their younger selves and writing letters back and forth to each other as those 12-year-old kids they once were? In the past, I have to say, I haven't been a huge fan of fiction that's written by two authors, but this one really works. And I think it's because the format and that we want to see and feel the lives of the two characters that are so distinct from each other. 
This book won the Nautilus Book Award, which is an annual award given to books in the genre of social and environmental justice and seeking to recognize books in multiple categories that make a difference and inspire. I enjoyed this book. I appreciated the way it highlighted social justice challenges in two different settings. I didn't know anything at all really about what rent control really meant in New York City. And so that was educational for me. And while this does have some heavier topics, it also has a lot of honesty, goofy thoughts by 12-year-olds, and hope. So there's my there's my little plug for Same Sun here. I really enjoyed it. I was just sitting here thinking like, oh, yeah, she's like reading this is like very deep, impactful book. And I've been over here listening to Cozy Mysteries where I'm mostly just interested in listening to them talk about the food that they're eating. So it's fine. It's fine. Was that their writing process where each author took one of the characters? And is that how they did it? I think it is how they did it, but I don't really know. I haven't, I just finished it earlier today. So I haven't had a chance to research to see if there's any interviews with either of these authors. I know that these two authors know each other. So they're both faculty members at Spalding University's low residency Masters of Fine Arts program. And so I'm sure that they have connected in that way, you know, when they're both in Louisville at that Spalding University program, but I don't know how they wrote it. Exactly. But that's the way it seemed to me that maybe one wrote a chapter and then would send it to the other. And then the other would sort of write a chapter that responded to that chapter Mm -hmm. that was sent to them, which is kind of cool. I bet they use Google Docs. (laughs) Just like us, Carrie. Just Just like like us. (laughs) I added Same Sun Here and Invisible Library to my Goodreads list. So that's what I was doing when I was listening to both of you. (laughs) Well, very cool because I have a copy and you can borrow my copy. Ooh, very good. Very good. All right. Well, we will take a short break. And when we come back, we'll be asking Diane her top five. We are back with Diane New, the podcast host of Shape by Stories. And we're going to be asking her her top five. Diane, you have said that you are not a very good embroiderer. Where did you learn to embroider? And what is the embroidery item you've made that you feel is your top creation? (laughs) Um, I am self-taught just from online tutorials, some books, you know, that sort of thing. I had some sewing instruction as a kid and my mom is very crafty, so it's not entirely foreign territory to me. What I like about it is that I treat it as a true hobby. I feel like there's more of an expectation today that a hobby has to be somehow maximized or turned into a side hustle or something that Mm. you need to be really good at or it's not worth doing. Like, oh, I'm terrible at this, so I'm just not going to do it anymore. And this is something that I do purely for myself. I don't really care how it turns out. I just do it for fun. I find it really meditative and allow myself to enjoy the process. Aesthetically, I do okay if I'm following a pattern and somebody else has picked out all the floss colors for me and like told me how to color coordinate everything because then it's basically paint by numbers. But I, a terrible eye for like what colors would go well together. But I do like to do my own designs, mostly book quotes. So those always look a bit wonky. So is it needlepoint that you're doing? It's like freehand, like it's embroidery on, yeah, it's just like embroidery floss on plain cotton. It's not, it's not cross stitch. But yeah, yeah. I took a class recently with the kind of embroidery you're talking about. There, there's a company here that does pop up classes. I did one, and it was really fun. And I thought I'm going to do more of that. I have not done more, of that, <laughs> but I yeah, I just it. always have like a project going. Like I keep it in a tote bag next to my bedside table, and it's one of the things that I do at night to wind down. I'm usually 
listening to an audiobook while I'm stitching. And, and that's something that's really easy for me to do while I'm listening to an audiobook without losing track of things. I don't know. I, I started finally sharing some of them here and there on Instagram because why not? But it's one of the few things in my life where I can truly say that I'm just not that fussed about it. I will be like, hmm, that's kind of hideous. And it just makes me laugh. Like, I just don't really care. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm also a quite a mediocre piano player. So I feel like this is just me working on my ladylike accomplishments, all of Pride and Prejudice. So yeah. next Maybe next year I will take up watercolors. That will be my new thing. I don't know. I think that's pretty awesome because like you said, it's like this competitive thing. And I don't know if it's because of social media or what, like you're supposed to prove whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. like prove what you ate or prove what you did today. Or I want to tell you a secret thing. I don't do it often, but I have done some cross stitch. Actually, when my 16-year-old daughter was born, I made an entire cross-stitch wall hanging, but I pulled out some cross-stitch. They're like cat ornaments. And let me tell you what I like to do. I like to not follow the directions and put in the colors that I want to put in. So That's totally a carry thing right there. It's like, forget you, authority, that's telling me it has to be this color yellow. I'm going to do whatever color yellow I want. Well, if you're going to make cat ornaments, you might as well make them look like your cats because otherwise, what's the point? Right. So I'm just doing what I want over here in the (laughs) cross-stitch category. So this one is near and dear to my heart because I like to make cookies and I like to eat cookies, especially now (laughs) during quarantine. It's like all I want to do is bake. But as an expert cookie eater, what is your top cookie and why? I feel like I've just reached the pinnacle of everything I will ever achieve in life by being asked this question. So (laughs) (laughs) this is very specific, but my top cookie is a chocolate chip peanut butter oatmeal cookie. So good. And if you do it with M&Ms, then it's a monster cookie. And then you can eat the cookies while pretending you're cookie monster and call back. Then it's like inception cookie eating. So just think about that. (laughs) So is this like a family recipe? Is there somebody who makes these cookies or are you making the cookies? Both either. I'm. That was one of the things that my mom actually made for me right after my daughter was born. I had mentioned like, I really want monster cookies. And you've never seen so many monster cookies in a freezer in your entire life. Just bags upon bags of them. She's just, <laughs> just going through jars of peanut butter left and right. But yeah, it's a really easy recipe to make. And it's like a dump and stir kind of yeah. situation. It's not like, oh, you have to roll these out into a log and then put it in the refrigerator. And you know, that's just, that's like too much work. Like I want to get to That is a lot of work. work. Yeah. We might as well just be eating the batter out of the pan. Exactly. Why do we even exactly. need to bake it? <laughs> I, I really feel like I need to add dump and stir. Like, I'm, I don't know that I've ever heard that phraseology <laughs> there, but I really feel like that sums up a lot of my life in a lot of different ways. <laughs> like, dump and stir. Yeah. There you go. When I see something like dump and stir or one pot or one bowl, I'm like, yes. that is my kind of cooking right there. Yes. You're speaking my language, Diane. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. You have already said that you love Jane Austen. So what is her top book and why is it your favorite? I feel like I have to clarify. This is my top. Everybody's allowed to have their own particular favorite, (laughs) but Emma has always been my favorite, both for the story itself. And I think the writing in it is just spectacular. Like it's so tight and perfect and there's so many things going on. And it's also kind of like a mystery novel at the same time. 
And it's also the first Jane Austen novel I ever read. So I have a very deep connection with it that way. Like if I were going to interview myself for my podcast, this is probably the book that I would pick. Um, (laughs) It was my first introduction to Austen when I was 12 or 13. And I just love everything about it. There's, There's something so timeless about the struggles that Emma as an individual character has. And so much of the conflict in the book is personality based. You could take this book and you could turn it into a workplace comedy or you could set it at a school, which is why Clueless is such a great adaptation. And the interpersonal relationships, the family dynamics, there's all those petty jealousies. It feels very true to life to me, even if some of the class stuff is a little different today. The rest of it still feels really relatable. It's a great study on human nature, and it doesn't hurt that I find the romance to be very swoony, and that is also important (laughs) to me, dear to my heart. So I read this one recently. I'd never read it before, and I wanted to read it before the new movie Mm. came out. So did you see the new movie? I did see the new movie. I knew you were What did you think? (laughs) What did you think? It was really good. Like The aesthetics were just gorgeous. I love the candy-coated treatment, even if it's not necessarily what I would imagine that time to really look like in my head. It was just really fun. I love the music. I love the use of English folk music in particular. I don't know. I definitely have my list of quibbles, but I do with any Austin adaptation, even yeah. if, even with the ones that I'm like, this is basically perfect. But for me, that is personally part of the enjoyment. Like I can both swoon over it and also give it the full MST3K treatment at the same time when you're so familiar with a book and you know it so well and it's not like a book that you read once and then you went to go see the movie adaptation like I'm talking about books that I've read dozens of times it's so fun to dissect the movie and like say like oh okay they they cut out this part for this reason and they made this choice with this character like that's really interesting for me like viewing it almost becomes more of like a mental exercise and trying to understand what the director and the screenwriter were, were trying to do with the text and it is really their interpretation of it, which doesn't necessarily always jive with my interpretation of it, but I still appreciate it. And also Miranda Hart should be given all the parts she ever wants. Oh, that is exactly what I was going to say that I thought she was the perfect casting Mm -hmm. for that part. She was so good. Like give her all the jobs, all the acting. I want her to be the new co-host of Great British Bake Off. I'm just putting that out there into the universe. (laughs) She's pretty awesome. So you have said that you like to collect some old books, usually books you can't afford off of Mm -hmm. eBay. So if you could purchase any book off eBay that is more than you can reasonably afford, what is the top book you'd get and why? Oh, this is like choosing your favorite child. Okay, if I have to make a decision right now, I would probably go with the famed Hugh Thompson illustrated Peacock edition of Pride and Prejudice from 1894. I feel like that's a pretty basic choice for a Jane Austen lover, but the heart mm-hmm. wants what it wants. So that's what I'm going with. I went to the Antiquarian Book Fair in Seattle last fall just because you want to see how the other half lives. And <laughs> my little heart was just pitter patter the whole time. I did not see a Peacock edition of Pride and Prejudice, but I did see a three volume first edition Jane Eyre for only $45,000. Oh so. my God. <laughs> Which honestly, that makes a Peacock edition look positively affordable because you can get one of those for only like a few thousand dollars. So it's oh, cheap. Wow. <laughs> I think I misjudged what you were talking about as far as like the books you couldn't afford. I was thinking, I don't know, not that. I was not thinking that. Let's put it like. Well, I feel like a lot of times with these types of books, 
you can get like pretty decent vintage editions of books that are really beautiful, even for a couple hundred dollars, which is, you know, not insignificant, but it's, if it's something that you're saving for, and then it just feels like it goes from there to like straight into the, yeah. the thousands, you know, there's not a lot in that seven to $800 range, which is also would be too much for me. That antiquarian book fair was just wild. First of all, I was the youngest person there by a good 40 years. And I had no idea that there were so many wealthy dudes who love to spend their money money on, <laughs> on old, books. old books i was like oh this is where all the gentlemen scholars come to hang out on the weekend <laughs> there was a lot of tweed you have mentioned that you have a young child yourself and as a person who strongly believes that children's books can shape a reader what is the top book you want to own <laughs> so that you can read it to your child well, beyond the picture book stage, I feel like there are so many books that I hope to introduce my daughter to and that I would love for her to love, obviously. Anybody who's a book lover is like, oh, I hope my kids also love all the same books that I love, which, spoiler alert, is probably not going to happen. But Anna Green Gables, the whole series, is definitely at the top of that list. I'm also really looking forward to reading Harry Potter out loud with her when she's a little bit older. Yeah. My husband has never read them, so that's going to be a family affair in a few years. There are also books that I plan to give her or have around so that she can access if she doesn't you know, get them on her own through school, like books that were really special for me to read on my own. The one that really sticks out in my head is The Mixed Up Files, and this is Basil mm. Frankweiler. That was mm -hmm. such a huge book for me. I was just like, yes. Let us run away to the museum and find a way to live there. All the planning and the details and how they figure out how to get food and do their schedule. I just found all those little details so fascinating as a kid. Yeah. I think those two kids should maybe consider leading the pandemic response for the right? federal government. Yeah. yeah. Claudia knows how to plan. She knows what's up. And her brother has all the cash. So I mean, what, that's what I love most about that book is at the very beginning, she's like, mm, I kind of want to go by myself, but he has all the savings. So I better bring yeah. him along as well. Those kids are pretty crafty. I'm also really looking forward to seeing what books she gets into on her own. I feel like there are so many great children's books being published all the time, like so many great middle grade and YA titles out there. I'm sure she'll come across some gems at the Scholastic Book Fair eventually, which is, as we all know, <laughs> the greatest thing of all time. Things that I've tried to get them to read and things that they've discovered on their own has been really fun. The boys don't, they don't want to read are you there? God, it's me, Margaret. But <laughs> I did get them to read the fudge books. So right. I felt like I got a win there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just, I have to keep reminding myself, she might not turn out to be as big of a book nerd like me and that's okay too. Just hopefully she'll at least tolerate my book nerdery and not, <laughs> you know, roll her eyes at me completely all the time, but I'm sure that's coming as well. Yeah, probably. Probably yeah. a little bit. It's a little bit inevitable, right? Yeah, but, it is. But it won't have anything to do with you being a book nerd. It'll just because you're mom. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. As long as it's just directed at like the wholeness of me as mom and not yes, specifically yes. at the books. Right. Well, Diane, thank you so much for recording with us and for helping us record. You were the person who helped us figure out how to do it to begin with. So without you, we wouldn't have been able to do this. So thank you so much. And we always look forward to seeing what new episodes you have coming out. Well, likewise. And it was so fun chatting with you guys today. Thanks for joining us today. For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. 
If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.